Good morning. Welcome to Eastlake. We are so glad that you're joining us today. We're in part two of a series called Advent. It's been a series basically on Christmas. And if you missed last week, there's a website you can go to, eastlaketricities.com slash talks. This is going to be a three and a half part series. I say half part because uh, Christmas Eve falls on a Sunday this year. So we're going to do Christmas Eve service and uh, we'll do part four, but um, it's a really short service. So it'll be a lot less of me. So if that's appealing to you, we'd love to have you come out for Christmas Eve because <clears throat> it'll be a shorter talk for me. Um, the essence of the series or the idea behind this whole thing is that there are really two holidays that are going on right now, right? There's the, uh, there's the Christian church holiday of Christmas, and then there's the secular holiday of Christmas. And we probably would do, do well to operate as if those are two things. They happen on the same day, and, uh, and a lot of times the language kind of, like, there's a crossover in, in language and in terms and in, in thoughts and feelings and all of, all of that. Um, and it can feel, it's really tough because uh, sometimes um, there will be a lot of, like, lobbing grenades at the other party from the church to the Christian, or the Christians to the secular society, and then back and forth, uh, of us saying, um, you hijacked our holiday, right? And uh, remember the reason for the season, right? And, uh, and we get angry when it's happy holidays or just Merry Christmas, all, all, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and I would imagine that on the, on the other side of things, they're like, listen, we took your holiday and we made it better, right? Like, the highlight of yours were donkeys in a stable, like, Ours fly. You know what I mean? Like, that's an upgrade. We have done you. Is there anything more boring than a nativity scene? Um, the climax of your story was there's no room in the end. What are we going to do, right? Ours is so much better. How is he going to hit all of these houses in just one evening, right? There's so much more mystery to ours. Um, and so anyways, uh, it, it's funny because I, I do think it would probably be best, and, and, and Christians would say, ours is so much older. Ours is like over a thousand years older than your, this modern view of, of the secular holiday of Christmas is really like a hundred years old. That's, that's about it. Um, and, and so uh, there's all kinds of battles back and forth. And the reality is, um, I'm not here to like wage the war or pick a side or anything like that. I, I, my, my philosophy is how about we just treat them as kind of two separate things and then focus in because that, that because that's not going to happen. Um, it's not like we're not going to put a tree up or lights up. In fact, I think some of those things kind of cross over again as well. And we'll talk about that a little bit, but I would say that, uh, I, I want to take a few weeks and focus on some of the common themes that we share between both of them and, and then figure out kind of a little bit, maybe even deeper uh, of, of each kind of area. So last week we talked about generosity because at this time of year, there's never a better month to be more generous than at the month of December. You go into any coffee shop, there's going to be a tree with some sort of gift tags that you can take and help a needy family. There's all kinds of appeals at work for a helping hands program for people who can't pay their electricity bills. And you're more likely to be generous in December than any other month of the year. Part of that's for the tax reason, the way that that falls on the calendar. We get that. We don't want to talk about that. We'd rather just assume that we're really generous people, and that's just a part of our character and who we are. Um, but it's not. Anyways, uh, so, so the, the message, no matter what coffee shop you go to or whatever signs you read or anything else, it's, it's you know, be generous or um, give love or give things or give, you know, be giving, be a, be a generous person. That, that is appealing to both and a message of both, absolutely. Um, and yet, 
Last week we said the reason that you should do that is not for like some sort of sentimental feeling value, um, but because the charge of Christians from the very beginning, the early church, um, was to model their footsteps in the footsteps of Jesus, who was the most generous person ever. Like we talked about some of his interactions and some of his teachings. And we said, listen, no strings attached compassion and generosity became the hallmark of the first century church. The thing that the church was known for from the, from the outsiders, from the secular society is, I don't know what they, if we line up with everything that they believe, but my gosh, they're way more generous than we are. In fact, one of the emperors, uh, Emperor Julian, if I'm, it's not my notes, but I'm, I'm, I think it's, it's what it is. Roman emperor criticized his own priests because their religious system was not taking care of the poor uh, and the uh, and the, the people who need welfare and a hand up, um, as well as the Christian churches are. He's like literally condemning them. An open letter written that was captured for us through antiquity and history to be like, guys, the Christian church thing, the Christian movement is expanding, and it's because you jokers can't take care of the people. And then when they get better or when they get on their feet, then they become Christians because that's who helped them out when they were struggling. Right? That's what they were known for. That's the hallmark of the very first century church. So to take that and then be like, okay, that was great for them, but what about now? Our message last week was while we may be criticized for what we believe, we should be famous. We should be famous for our compassion and our generosity. We should be famous for that. People would be like, I don't, I don't, I'm not into the, the whole belief thing, and I don't know why they have to give up their Sundays, but I want my son to marry a, a Christian. I want my boss to be one. I want all of those things because I, I value their character. I value who they are as people. So today we're talking about goodwill um, because you hear that message um, communicated goodwill to all men or, or peace on earth or whatever. And when I say goodwill, I don't mean the place you go to to shop for the ugly Christmas sweater um, or like Buns of Steel VHS. Although they have both of those things, that's not the goodwill I'm talking about. The goodwill I'm talking about is that good feeling, that good, like be nice this Christmas, be, have goodwill towards men. Like in this season, you are more likely to be presented with a, um, you know, really, could you not think of yourself for like a month? Could you not, could you not be so consumed with your career and, and with upward mobility and upward progression and always career advancement, always career advancement? Can, can for one time you just be like, you know, what, I'm going to lay that kind of down. And that's how all like Christmas stories sort of resolve is this goodwill towards men. We all find ourselves singing in the living room or they sing in the living room and they sing some sort of Christmas carol or whatever. Um, and it's very confusing too, because a lot of times when they're singing these Christmas carols, a lot of the Christmas carols, especially the really traditional ones, have so much theological value. I don't know if you've ever heard Joy to the World being sung on like NBC. And I'm always like, that goes against like the message of everything that you seem to be about 364 days of the year. It's so weird to me that you would not, anyways, but that's whatever. Um, in this moment and in, in this season, goodwill is communicated on, on both ends on, on both kind of holidays. And peace on earth is quite possibly the most non-controversial, bipartisan, internationally appropriate, culturally acceptable, and surprisingly relevant thing that you could possibly say this Christmas. Both express shared optimism of a better future with two different messages on how to get there. So that's, that's, really, the, that's really the fork in the road. We agree peace on earth is admirable and something we should achieve and something that, we should, something that would be great for this world. And we, we believe that, um, that you should be kind during Christmas, that you should have goodwill towards people. And there's an assumption underlying that, which is that the world is not as it should be, which is why goodwill is needed. You would never say 
Be nice if there were already being nice. Peace on earth if there was already peace on earth. You would never say something that's the obvious. You only say it because there's a lack of it. You've, I, I've said this a few months ago in, in a series, but you've never sat in a room and gone, gosh, the temperature is just perfect in here. It's perfect, isn't it? You never talk about that when it's, you only notice when it's not great. Then you say, it's freezing in here. And it is, we apologize. It's a really old building and we're working on it and we're hoping a whole bunch of bodies in here. Actually, if you're really cold, come to second service because it gets really hot in here, second service. You should check that out. You only notice it in the absence of it, which is why when you say peace on earth or goodwill towards men, there's an underlying assumption that there is not peace on this world and that it is not all as it should be. And we often liken it to a word, a word that shows up in scripture and really a word that shows up in kind of, I don't know, just like literary writings. It's the idea of darkness. And um, when it comes to darkness in scripture, darkness was always uh, a sign of suffering and ignorance, like we, the, a world in darkness. And in the same way, um, when we would speak informally of somebody who's struggling with um, either depression or um, just kind of mental struggles, and, and we would say, oh, they're, they're in a dark state right now. Like, we know exactly what we mean when I say um, they're struggling, they've got some personal darkness that they're battling in this moment. That's how we, uh, we, 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 we've said that. And there's a palpable difference, we know this, between I'm lost and I'm lost and it's getting dark, right? We understand the emotion involved in that. And then we would say, but it, you know, like it, but at Christmas, then we, we see these lights and, and, and for, for Christmas, for this holiday, both secular and religious lights have always been a big deal. That's why you will, um, you will go to the Sensky lighting sometime, probably turn your state radio station, in your car to some, I don't know what channel it is. And then it bounces all around and um, Trans-Siberian Orchestra plays and you just get all teary-eyed and it's, it's amazing. It's really great. Or you're going to go to the Luminary in Pasco on Road 44 on whatever day that is. And you're going to see all these candles lit out with everybody who uh, is trying to light their neighbor's house on fire by putting bags with candles everywhere. It's, it's like this really cool, everybody drives through it like half a mile an hour and it takes four hours to get one. Anyways, it's, it's, it is fun. You should go check it out. Or... You, or you, you know, you go and you, you see um, the tree at Rockefeller Center with five miles of lights on one tree. Like the light in the darkness is part of the theme of Christmas. Um, when you as a family decide, let's go look at lights, you don't do it at 10 a.m. <laughs> um, you don't even flip your lights on at 10 a.m. They, they, they own, the only value that they come from is when it's dark out. So you have a timer or something or plug in or you send the kids out in the cold to plug them in at night or something like that. And, and that's when it, the, the striking difference between a light shining in the darkness is kind of a piece of Christmas, both for an aesthetic value, really, when it comes to kind of like the secular version. But then there's also like this Throughout history, there's like this spiritual value of a light shining in the darkness. It's been a message about the Christmas story since um, really like the early, back really in, in the Hebrew, um, in the Jewish days, in, in the Jewish history. In fact, we're going to read a passage. I'm going to get to a passage that's going to be really, really familiar for you. In fact, it's probably on like half your Christmas cards that you sent out this last year, or you didn't send any out. The ones that you received from your grandma, that half of them have this verse on it. So that, that verse is going to be familiar, but what I'm going to do is build up to that to try and provide a little bit of context for that passage, okay? And the book, um, the, the chapter, the verse, or the 
text that it comes from is uh, the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, there's all kinds of categories of writings in the Old Testament, right? There's history, um, which is like, um, uh, like here's what happened with the people uh, of Israel. There's poetry, um, that's like Song of Solomon. There's uh, and even uh, Proverbs and uh, Psalms and all of that. And, and one of the categories is the, pro- they call it the prophetic literature, um, and there's two subdivisions of that. There's major prophets and minor prophets. And, and it's not like one's better than the other. It's just for this, the actual physical n- numerical value of the body of words. So it wasn't like uh, 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 Haggai was less significant than Isaiah. Isaiah just wrote a lot more, okay? Um, so Isaiah is one of the biggest, longest books in the Old Testament. And prophetic literature is less about what is going to happen in the future? Sometimes that, that's what we think about when we hear people, when we hear people at our old church that we used to go to, but here's one of the reasons why we don't go there anymore, have the gift of prophecy, and you're like, oh, creepy, okay, you know? Uh, and it would always be about, I see something happening to you, or I, I see you finally meeting somebody and getting married, and you're like, I want to stay around because I'm hopeful, but I think you're wacko. You know what I mean? So I don't know what I should do here. I'm, I'm kind of torn. Prophetic literature is not so much about the future as it was about here's what's going on if you'll have eyes to see. Um, prophetic literature in the Old Testament really was about the current circumstances. Here's what's going on, but a lot of times we're so lost and blinded to our own biases in our own self and our own what's in front of us that we kind of miss it. And so the really good authors, both fiction and nonfiction, even in modern day society, some of the people that you respect and when you read them, you feel smarter or you see the world differently as a result of reading what they write. Malcolm Gladwell has a podcast called Revisionist History that he's done like two seasons of. And every time I listen to it, I walk away and I always... Like, I see things differently in the world. I see how, uh, I don't know, it just changes your outlook on it. That was, what the, that was what the prophetic books did for the Jewish people, which is why they kept them and collected them and put them into their Jewish scriptures in Isaiah. So that's the context of what we're reading, all right? Isaiah chapter 8, towards the end of this chapter, the backdrop is that... Um, Israel as a nation has it come through the exodus for, away from Egypt. So they found themselves, um, there's this family story, this legend that we were called to be the nation of God, but we find ourselves in 400 years of slavery. Is that my buddy again? Hey, dude, how you doing? You did this two weeks ago too. That's awesome. How are you? <laughs> to be fair, my wife has a third one she has her eyes on, so a little bit of grace, uh, or fourth, actually. London takes care of herself, but anyways. <laughs> I don't remember, let's close in prayer. I don't remember where I was. <laughs> Just kidding. All right. The nation of Israel has come through the Exodus. They're no longer slaves in Egypt. Um, God has offered them this promised land, if you'll like, listen and obey, and we go into the modern day, what we know as Israel, like that whole eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea, known as the Fertile Crescent. It was very... Um, very rich in natural resources and very desirable. They go in uh, and they take over some of, of that land. And like any 
nation or project that you've ever started, there's lots of momentum at the beginning. And then there's what's called the dip, right? Where it's like, I am trying and I'm not getting the returns that I got early on. And there's a temptation to be like, screw all of this. I'm done. I'm not putting this dollhouse together in time for Christmas or whatever, or I'm not building this or I, you have I, how many half finished projects at home because you just couldn't escape the dip. They're in the dip as a nation. Okay. So imagine coming through and they're like, we're going to be, we're going to be, we come with all these great hopes and we're going to split off the land into the, all the 12 different tribes that they had. But then there's like some infighting between the tribes. And then there's, there, there's just, there's, um, they're, they're supposed to excommunicate all of the people who are currently living in there who could p- potentially draw them away from the monotheistic or one God culture. And they, they do that sometimes, but they're not, not all the time. And so they're struggling. And, uh, and then add on to that, there's a famine in the land. And so food is scarce. And, and even though they're in a place that is supposed to be abundantly providing, uh, they are not following the footsteps of what God has commanded them to do. And, and either correlatingly or uh, correlated, is that a word? Anyways, uh, by correlation or by just happenstance, things are not going well just in the natural economy, food-wise, money-wise, et cetera, et cetera. So they're struggling. And in those moments, they feel that darkness that we're talking about. Like th- there's, there's not only an absence of good, but there's actually evil in this. Like we, we find ourselves, um, when left to our own, doing things that we know we are not ought to do and doing, not doing the things we know we ought to do. It's an Old Testament struggle. It's a New Testament struggle. Paul just delineated it for us in his writings. But verse 21 of chapter 8, distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. Again, this is not prophetic in terms of this is what's going to happen in the future. He's trying to say, guys, here's what, let me describe the situation if you will have eyes to see it. Now, they will roam through the land when they are famished, that's like now, this is what you're doing. They will become enraged and looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. We will get angry at God because of frustration with our current experience. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. The message is this, uh, that when darkness comes, we get frustrated with God, and then instead of looking to God for answers, our natural tendency, our history as a people, as, as a, just a being, is to look toward the earth for answers. And yet, when we look towards the earth for answers, all we find is more frustration and more darkness. And Christmas is a message of unparalleled hope, and yet Christmas is also telling you something about the world and about our own heart and about our own mind that is sobering and insulting a little bit, if you actually think about it. Because the, the, the text here tries to make it sound or makes it sound as if this, if you will have eyes to see what happens when you are thrust into darkness, is that you look to solve the problem through your own feats. That when we struggle with this, we look toward the earth, which is a, a way of saying we look down at what we're at and what do I do with what I have? Yes, they say we're in darkness, but we can overcome it ourselves. And some look more to the state in terms of a government authority to solve the problems of darkness. Listen, when we look at the world now and we go, man, we read the paper this morning or we got on a news feed or Twitter or something like that and we see the darkness all around us, we get frustrated and be like, ah. And we look towards the earth and we say, gosh, if we would just 
get him out and someone else in, right? Or if we could just um, make the right policies, if we could hire enough guys who would not spend their time doing stupid, dumb stuff when it comes to women and just life and everything else, then we could possibly really get some issues solved in all of this. Some of us looked at more to the market and we say, if, you know, if we had more money, the problem with this is that, uh, is that um, there's systemic poverty and if we could just get money involved in this and get people the right foot, then people with money would make, if they had money, they would make the right decisions. And then people would be like, what about the people who have tons of money and they still make really poor decisions? And you're like, oh, well, ignore them first. They have too much money. There's, there's, a, there's a middle line somewhere. I don't know where it is, but if we could just get that perfect amount of money, then people would be really smart with their money and really smart with how they interact with people and not be jerks about it and not abuse it and use it and all that kind of stuff. And everybody looks to technology. Yeah, the world's broken. It's, there's some darkness, but someday somebody's going to invent something. And then, you know, uh, think of life pre-internet. Think of life pre-medicine. Think of, think of how far we've progressed. Surely we are on a um, progression towards a more civilized and a more equal and a more fair and a more balanced and a more loving society. And, and then it's like, do, do you really think that we're more loving because we have iPhone 10s than we were when we had iPhone 4s? Is that re- We've said in, in our technology series, technology is at best neutral in this, right? I mean, that's not, yes, we're not fighting polio anymore. That's an advancement in culture, but we just, um, we, we find other ways to destroy ourselves. Do you know what I mean? Things are dark, but we believe that we can end the darkness with intellectual uh, advancement or innovation. And when we do that, we are like the nation of Israel who find themselves in our darkness and look towards the things of earth to solve the things. And we get frustrated at God and we point our finger and we shake our fist and we say, why, why, why? And you know what? We got it covered. We'll figure it out because we don't apparently need you. An ad in the New York Times a few years back described Christmas as this. The meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. Now, that sounds really nice. And at Christmas... The, the message of the secular holiday of Christmas is if we could just put things aside for even just one day, what would that do? And maybe that would appeal so much to us that we would not do it for a day, but for a week. And if that worked, maybe we'd do it for a, a, not just a week, but maybe a month and maybe for a month instead of that for a whole year. And then we'd have this Saturday where we all would come together and we would all love and we would all do things. And um, if you've been around the world long enough, you just know that that just doesn't work. Um, Bob Dylan did, uh, there was a concert back 15, 20 years ago called Live Aid. It was just like this whole thing, this is a big giant show, and we can come together. This was the message. If we just come together and join hands, and we can be united against all of this. And after the, 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 the show, he did this interview, and he was interviewed, and he had like this kind of smirk on his face, and you could tell it was, he was uncomfortable being there. And the, the, somebody asked him the question, what's up? What's going on? Why? Why? Or do you feel like this is not working? Was there? And he's like, I just don't. I'm just not convinced that the world can kind of save themselves. Like this brutally honest. I don't think we'll ever get there. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be kind and loving. That doesn't mean like we should be like, no, your message of grace and love is wrong. You know what I mean? Um, we should be angry with each other at Christmas. No, that's 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 not it. But to put all of our hope into if we could just have Christmas every day. Um, 
then the world would, would, would be right. And I just, I'm not convinced. And that, that really isn't the message of the Christmas holiday in, or the Christian version of Christmas holiday. Tim Keller uh, is a pastor in New York City, fabulous author, wrote this. And I was going to try and summarize it, and then I just kept practicing it and butchering it. So I'm just going to read it for you, okay? It's a long one. Deal with it, all right? <laughs> Christmas is the most unsentimental, realistic way of looking at life. It does not say, cheer up. If we all pull together, we can make the world a better place. The Bible never counsels indifference to the forces of darkness, only resistance. But it supports no illusions that we can defeat them ourselves. It's not indifference, but it is resistance. But let's not confuse resistance with overcoming that. We can do this. Christianity does not agree with the optimistic thinkers who say we can fix things if we try hard enough, nor does it agree with the pessimists who see only a dystopian future. The message of Christianity is instead, things really are this bad, and we can't heal or save ourselves. Things really are this dark. Nevertheless, there is hope. A light has dawned. And the reason he goes to this is if you look at the next verse, Isaiah chapter 9. So it ends with verse 22. So, and they, Isaiah wouldn't have had chapters. He wouldn't be like, all right, chapter done, flip over to the next one. He would continue writing. Chapters and verses came much, much later. In that, he would say there is darkness and people keep looking to the earth and they keep trying to solve it themselves and they will, they will find themselves frustrated if they have eyes to see. That, that can't work out in that way. And while the secular holiday preaches sentimentality, the religious holiday of Christmas points towards the reality of the brokenness of this whole thing. But, and this is the huge, this is the thing of Christmas, man. This is the reason Christmas is so big. Chapter 9, verse 1, nevertheless, nevertheless, there will be no more floor for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, and those are two different tribes of Israel, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles. Uh, it should be by the way of the sea along the Jordan. So yes, there's total and utter darkness. Yes, it's real. Yeah, there's not anything really that you, resistance, not indifference, resistance, but don't put too, too much hope in it. Nevertheless, something's coming. Something, some bright hope is coming. A light has dawned. And he, in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles. And here's the thing we know about Galilee. Um, the, the reason that the name is familiar to you is that is the region in which Jesus was born. He was born in Bethlehem, but raised in Nazareth. And, but that's all kind of Galilee's up here in the north. The Jordan River goes down to the Red Sea or the Dead Sea, sorry. Um, and um, so in, in this region, it's, it's literally the, the, the perception, the public perception of Galilee and Nazareth was, was not great. They were considered, it was considered kind of like, the podunk town. It was so close to the land of the Gentiles in the east. The people never really went and visited there. They didn't live there. You, you, you lived there because it was cheap. It was the small town. And the reason it's cheap is because nobody wanted to live there. Um, it, it's, the, uh, it's the idea of, of uh, like this. Uh, it, we see it in the New Testament, right? Because when Jesus comes on the scene, somebody asks the question, what good can come from Nazareth? I mean, whatever comes from there. And some of you are from small towns, and you don't let anybody know where you're really from, do you? When you sometimes you're from a town, you're not like, I don't want to say it. I'm from eastern Washington. In fact, when you, when you, uh, 
When you travel and you go to big cities or you're on a cruise somewhere and somebody goes, where are you from? You say Washington, don't you? You don't say Pasco. When they go Seattle, you're like, yeah, close enough. Yeah. <laughs> we, we don't like to admit sometimes when the small town, because we have this like, there's like this snobbery of, of the world that big ideas come from big towns that not anything big, what good can come from like this idea of a small town? It's the sneering arrogance of the world. Um, I have uh, a friend who his grandma is from Imnaha, Oregon. You ever heard of Imnaha? Nope, you haven't. <laughs> kind of by Willowa Lake. You ever heard of that one? We always joke about Imnaha because if you blink, you can drive, you drive through. If you blink, you miss it. It has a post office open one day a week and a general store open, I don't know, maybe, maybe every day. Who knows? But I've never seen anybody in there except for the person that's working in there. We drove there because we were in Wallawa Lake a long time. In the general store, they literally sell shirts that say, where the hell is Imnaha? That's, the, that's what they're proud of. And uh, we bought several of them because we think that that's pretty funny. But you would never be like, I'm from Imnaha. You know what I mean? Like, that's, the, that's what's going on in this. Great things don't happen in little towns like that. Great thoughts aren't thought in little towns like that. If you want great things to happen, you got to move, man. you got to move to L.A., New York, Paris, Tokyo, whatever it is. And yet, right here, if you'll have eyes to see, he's trying to say this. Nevertheless, yes, the world is broken, but something is coming, and it's not anything that you were able to create for yourself. It's not a light that you were able to develop it was a light that is discovered, an outside-in sort of thing that you did not create for yourself. And it comes from Podunkville, Galilee, slash Nazareth. It's going to come in ways that you don't foresee. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, 7. I told you I'd get to the spot where you'd actually recognize a verse. Here it is. Ready? For to us or unto us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Prince, but you guys are singing this right now, aren't you? You're humming it underneath your breath. You're like, hmm. I'm not going to sing it for you, but you, you are. <laughs> of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. His reign will on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and hold, upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. So really three parts to this thing. Uh, the end of chapter 8. There's brokenness in the world. We keep trying to solve it ourselves. Uh, part number two is a light has dawned, and it comes in the most unlikely of, unlikeliest of ways. And number three, unto us a child is born. Not only from where he comes from, but how he comes. A light um, that is an answer to the brokenness of this world. And, and uh, there's arguments over whether or not even this was a, a, a prophetic uh, a prophecy of the birth of Jesus, right? There, so um, there's some of that in there. Um, and I, I, I understand, but I, I really do think that this is, this is the author's way, and this is God's way of including this for us in, in all time to say, listen, your help does not come from trying harder or doing better. Sometimes there are things in life that through not a lack of effort or lack of dedication, but simply it's just not within your abilities to be able to do this. You need outside help. That's how it works. And in this sense, a light has dawned that Christmas is not about sentimentality of, gosh, if we could do this, if we would all join up together, we could not. Like, 
the, the reality is that's not what it is. The Christmas message is that that help has come from the outside. And if it's really true that in order for Jesus to come to be near to us, he had to humble himself, then we also must do the same. We also come with no expectations and no, well, if I come, you owe me this. And if I'm here, you're lucky to have me look at me in church and all of that. It just doesn't fly at Christmas. The message of Christmas is the world is a dark, dark place. And yet the coming of Jesus shows us that nobody and nothing is hopeless. The message of the secular Christmas holiday is uh, peace on earth through good feelings, good vibes, and giving it your all. The message of the Christian Christmas holiday is the world is a dark, dark place, and yet, nevertheless, the coming of Jesus shows us no one and nothing is hopeless. So this year, as you shop, as you go to your mailbox and open envelopes and Christmas cards and see Isaiah chapter nine and read about unto us a child is born. My hope, my prayer would be that it rings true in your mind that this help, that this light has done, that there is immense hope at Christmas, but it's not because perhaps we could do one day a year, 364 other days a year, but that truth, that light has come through the form of God on earth. Let's pray. Father, we ask that this would ring true in our hearts and in our minds. Um, We look back at our lives as we take inventory. Um, We realize that we, through effort, a lot of times have attempted to kind of solve all of our problems and and, and think that that the solution is within us if we could just, just get it right. And yet we find ourselves failing over and over again. And, um, let that be a reminder to us that the message of Christmas is so so different from that. It's like a different game altogether. And may we, this Christmas, really live with uh, a greater awareness and an understanding of the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, on this earth the invitation to follow in his footsteps. Give us the wisdom to know what this looks like in our life and the courage to act on it in your name. Amen.